Welcome to the Life as a Coder podcast series, brought to you by Ozark Institute, an initiative of OncoSpark, a technology-enabled revenue cycle management company, discussing your life as a medical coder, offering tips and advice for coding students and professionals. Join us every Wednesday. Hello and welcome to the Life as a Coder podcast. My name is Jennifer McNamara and I am your host today. Our program is brought to you from Ozark Institute. Ozark Institute is an initiative of OncoSpark, a technology-enabled revenue cycle management company. And as always, remind our audience that anything you hear on the podcast, any episode, any time, is not to be taken as legal or professional advice. We provide education based on regulatory guidelines, experiences, the interviews that we have of our guests are based on knowledge, experience, and just overall wanting to share what we've learned over the years and how it can help you in your practice, um, how it can help you improve in your education and, and your goal to continue your journey as a coder, a biller, an auditor. And you know what? At the end of the day, we're all patients too, right? So anything you learn from others uh, to help you manage your healthcare is beneficial. So I invite you to stay tuned for season six, episode eight, Are You Just a Medical Coder? The barriers for practices and patients due to prior authorizations are a clinical and clerical issue. I want to thank OncoSpark for designing a platform that streamlines and standardizes the authorization process. This optimizes staff and resources while decreasing the time a patient must wait. The platform will seamlessly integrate with your practice management system and electronic medical record, alerting you to expiring authorizations or order changes. Off-parency's reports can be used for internal development as well as payer and pharma accountability direct insurance verification, and specialty pharmacy hub enrollment are standard modules in the platform too. So jump on over to authparency.com. That's www.authparency.com. And get started today with this amazing tool. Now today's episode... I really want to talk about the overall business of healthcare. I want to talk about revenue cycle management. I've talked about it before. I've talked about so many levels, right? And it's life as a coder. So mostly what I talk about is, you know, the everyday things that affect a medical coder's job. Because believe it or not, a medical coder's job is not just to code. Now, that may sound foreign to some people, and it may sound unrelatable to the task of being a medical coder for some of you. But if you want to grow in the industry and you want to be successful, your goal ultimately should be right to increase the revenue of the practice or facility you work for. Your job is at the end of the day to follow the coding guidelines that are given to us by those who write the codes and those guidelines for them as well as the regulatory guidance that's given to us by Medicare, Medicaid, our local agencies, and as well as your commercial carriers. Anyone who's paying the bill, right, for a service. Because at the end of the day, remember, the codes you submit are not just sitting there in your software. They're going out to someone to pay them. 
So when you think about it that way, you know, when you have a service you're providing, you're expecting to be reimbursed for that service. And whether it's the patient reimbursing you or it is an insurance company, someone reimbursing you in some way, they're going to have requirements, as I've said before, and those requirements need to be followed. Now, you're going to do yourself a service as a medical coder if you don't think about yourself as just a medical coder. Now, I have been in a role before where I was coding all day long, and that's all my task was. I was to pull the charts, whether back in the day, right, it was paper charts, when we had to pull all those charts every day, find the charts um, that we needed to code from. We have like what we call the super bill, right? And we still call it that, I think, these days. Whether it's a super bill or it's in the EMR, the practice management software, those charges get filtered in and down to us in the, at the coding level. We look at that documentation. We verify that what the provider may have given us as a code, because you know, sometimes they code their own charts. They give us the code that they, they punch in, or maybe it's intuitive software where it kind of maybe knows the code, right? That should go with that documentation. And it links that to uh, the, the note, right? So they're gonna type in what they did and they're just gonna pull up a list of codes for them, right? They're going to pull the code that they think is most appropriate to what they did. And I know many providers out there of service, many healthcare providers, physicians, you know, your advanced practitioners, they know a lot about coding. I've worked with these docs um, and these these physicians, these healthcare providers. But at the end of the day, they're busy. They they have a lot of patients to see and they really don't want to worry about this item <laughs> in healthcare. They don't want to... They really don't want to worry about where their money's coming from. They want to just get paid for their service, which is why they hire coders. They hire billers. They have directors and managers that that's their job to make sure that that happens. All of the guidance, the regulatory guidance out there that needs to be followed, the compliance that is filtered down through the staff and that that's being taken care of. So if you work for a large facility, you're an employed physician, you no doubt um, have all of that information filtered down to you as part of being an employee, you're required to meet those standards. You do have to have some element of compliance. And part of that is understanding what you can bill and what you cannot bill. And understanding when you submit a claim to an insurance company, they're expecting it to be accurate, accurately describing what you built with what you did. At the end of the day, that's what it's all about. Any industry will be the same, right? Um, when you ask for a service, you expect to receive what you're paying for. And that is no different in healthcare. And it shouldn't be any different in a service-based industry. You're providing a service. Patients need the service, mind you. We need to be um, healthy. We need to have procedures done so we can stay active and so we can keep a, a certain standard of living, right? But at the end of the day, it is a business. We are providing a service and they um, are expecting to be paid for that. Now, it's a complex industry, I'm not going to lie. Insurance, billing, uh, the revenue cycle is complex. Prior authorizations, all of this, there's a problem. And we can talk all day about where, this, where the problems are. But for today, we're here to talk about what we need to do to bridge that gap in communication. And I'm going to have more episodes coming down the pipe on bridging that gap of communication. Things that I've learned over the years in my role, many roles actually, all the way from being a receptionist, all the way up to being in management and now a consultant in healthcare. 
where I go and I talk to providers and, and practice managers and everyone on the staff and find out where their weaknesses are, where their their challenges are, because we want to know when we go into a practice, we help them, you know, figure out where they can improve. Our goal is to figure out what do you know and what do you not know? Uh, which staff are responsible for which tasks? And are those members of the staff understanding their role? Do they understand what resources they need? And are you providing those resources for them? Now, you may have educators on staff who are just as knowledgeable as anyone out there, and they're doing their due diligence to make sure that everyone in the facility, in the practice, has access to the education, to the resources they need to be accurate in their coding. So let's say, for instance, you are a medical coder. You're hired by a practice to be a coder. You know that's your job. You're going to pull that record. You're going to code the chart. But maybe you also know that because of an insurance company's policy, you've done your research, which you should, that because of the insurance, your code is going to have to change. And that is the problem that we're seeing so many times. We hear recently, I have seen others uh, make comments and I've heard these comments come down the pipe from individuals and I'm here just to talk about these comments in the light of education. I am not going to fault anyone for maybe something that they've heard from someone else or learned from some education out there that isn't based on actual regulatory guidance. There's lots of information out there from different individuals that may or may not be based on the regulatory guidance that we have to follow in healthcare to get paid. So going back to this thought that we are just submitting codes the providers give us, and that's our job, regardless of payment. That is faulty reasoning, unfortunately, because garbage in, garbage out. And if you have that mentality going through any service line industry, any industry out there, if you have the thought that it's not my job, you're not going to get very far, are you? And I have seen that attitude so much in healthcare. I personally have never had that attitude. I've been the first person, um, as long as I've grown up in, in, in my life, if anyone needed something, I wanted to find a solution for them. So when it comes to being in the healthcare industry, we're here to help people. And if we know that our patient needs a service, we're going to do whatever we can to get that cover, get them access to that. Because I'm a patient. I have insurance. I don't want to pay out of pocket for something if I have insurance to cover it. So I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that I have got it covered and I'm going to get paid. Now, insurance companies have what their standard language, right? It's not a guarantee of payment, even though you have a policy. So what that means is they don't guarantee payment, but they do tell you they have a policy that if you look at that policy, you have documentation to support it. It's medically necessary according to those standards. They're anticipating that they should be able to pay you, right? Barring any other variables like the patient, of course, um, canceling their coverage, or there is a, an error in prior authorization, communication gaps exist, and point A did not get to point B. So when we have those gaps in reimbursement, when we look at our reports every month, we see that we're not getting paid for something that should obviously have been paid for. You know, recently I had the opportunity to review some reports for a practice, and it was obvious to me there was, so, it was a problem I had to dig deeper, of course, to see what it was, and it just came down to lack of education, lack of knowledge. The codes were correct, 
but they didn't understand the proper application of modifiers, right? Because at the end of the day, not every situation is cut and dry or the same all across the board. There are things that happen that you build to an insurance company that they have rules and regulations in place, such as we talked about last week was the global package. So they are going to pay you a certain rate for so many days, right? And they give you pieces of information like modifiers to attach to tell them information. Because remember, they're not in the room with you. They don't have the documentation in front of them at that moment. So they get information from us. So when we tell them we did a, for instance, a knee replacement, and we did it on July 1st, and then we come back and we have another procedure done on the same body part or at the same from the same physician within maybe a month, they need to know that that procedure isn't related and that it's not part of that global service that they already told you they're paying you for, right? So they want you to attach a numeric two-digit number, right, to tell them that it's not related or it's a complication or it's some other information, right? You even attach maybe a different modifier to discuss laterality, right? So you tell them last time it was, this time it's the left. That is good information for them. Now they know, okay, I can pay this. It's within our guidelines. So those are things that on average, every coder knows or should know in order to do their job. And just putting the code in the computer that the provider gives you does not all the time tell the information that the insurance needs because maybe that person didn't know that. They weren't educated to know that. They didn't know that this insurance company had a rule on that. Well, how do we know that? We do research. And I still hear so many times, I don't have time to do research. I don't have time to read insurance policies. Well, if you don't have time for that, you are really hurting yourself. If you don't make time for that, have somebody in the office, somebody in the facility who makes time for that, you have to understand that's why you're not getting paid. Because in this industry, not every insurance company is created equal. They're not the same. They have their own rules. And that's why we have our CPT manual. The code says this. But hey, guess what? Medicare doesn't agree on that. They create their own code for that, which is in your HICS-PICS manual, right? Your HCPCS, Healthcare Common Procedural Coding System, right? They have their codes they create for that. And then you have payers like Medicaid. Let me tell you a whole other story there. Guess what? They have their own modifiers for certain situations. I worked in billing most of my life before I was a coder. I kind of, I guess I could say I split my time. I was a biller just billing, you know, working claims. I had to know, have some coding knowledge, even though I wasn't by title a coder. I was still in some way coding because I had to run things by the provider and say, hey, the insurance company says this. I need a coder to maybe help me figure out how to change this code. At that point in my job, it wasn't my job to do that. So I yes, I had to work with the coders. They had to work through and, and figure out if the code was correct after the insurance company said it wasn't. We had to fight through those things. But then once it became a coder and I was doing that every day, I had that billing knowledge already. I knew what needed to happen. And then the coding brain kicked in and then I was doing both jobs and I felt super empowered. I felt like, oh my goodness, I know both sides of this now. I feel really uh, amazing that I'm in this industry because I can figure these problems out. It's not just about having a cool job. It's about the person behind that claim that now has a way to get this covered. 
the provider is going to get paid for their service. The patient can continue to have access to this service in the future, can keep getting their services they need because now I understand why I'm doing this and I understand what needs to happen. So think about in those terms, thinking about your role, what you're doing as a coder, as a biller, maybe you're doing both jobs. Do you understand the importance of your job? And, you know, as a manager, do you understand how to filter through all the different roles, right, in your organization? You have your billers, maybe, your coders. Maybe you have those that are doing just prior authorizations, and they have to learn how to communicate with uh, the clinical staff. Maybe your clinical staff is the one doing the authorizations, but they don't know a lot of the coding, right? So they have to communicate with the coders. When I was on uh, in the orthopedic office for many years, there were many times where the, the nurse or the medical assistant would do those prior authorizations in some instances because it required clinical knowledge I didn't have. But if they had a question about codes, they would say, I need to have this procedure. I need to authorize this. I need to know the codes. But it was my job as a professional coder. I knew that provider's documentation and I knew what normally happens during that procedure. And I knew the codes that belonged to that procedure. So I was at a better position to provide all of the necessary codes needed, not just one or two that they may have had on a reference sheet for years that have changed, right, over the years. I knew from the current guidelines, the current code set, what codes needed to be on that authorization, potentially. Now, we know what happens, right, when we do an authorization and it gets down to the payer level and then we end up doing the procedure right. It's been approved. But hey, guess what? Provider gets in there oh my goodness, I've got to do this and this and this. this. This is worse than I thought. And we submit that claim and guess what? It denied because we submitted codes that were not authorized. When in the beginning, all we had to do was get in touch with a certified coder or even just someone who knew coding. They're not to be certified, right? There's many of you out there that aren't certified that are doing great work that are excellent at your job because you know codes. You know what that procedure requires or could require. and You're going to get it done. And I'm going to tell you, I'm a spine expert. I spent a lot of my years in, in orthopedic spine. I will tell you that it takes a, a village <laughs> to get a surgery approved sometimes, right? So you have all of those pieces, right? You have the, the arthrodesis procedure, that fusion procedure. You have the instrumentation codes. You have the grafting. You have maybe the cage that they use. You have additional procedures done at the same time, possibly, where they have to move that lamina. They have to remove that spinous process to access that area. All of those are reported with individual codes. I'm telling you one time I had to have like 15 codes authorized just to potentially cover one surgery. And many times you have maybe 10 codes that are actually built on a spine surgery in many cases if they're complex. So you can see why it takes diligence and it takes research to know, you know, what the insurance requires. Do they require this insurance? Do they require this procedure to be authorized? Every year they come on and off the list, right? So it was this past April, there was a procedure code that showed up on an authorization list that wasn't there before. And last July, there were codes that appeared on a uh, authorization list that were removed. And we have authorization updates every year, every every few months actually from different payers, commercial payers. Recently, uh, we were very excited to hear that one of our commercial payers 
was removing authorization requirements for cataract surgeries, which is a very common routine surgery performed by ophthalmologists. And it's a heavy burden on them to have to stop what they're doing, stop that patient care, stop that process of ordering surgery, right, to get that patient access. Now, I'm in a unique position because I've worked with clinical staff for many years, and I understand their role. I'm close with the staff that I work with at those offices. I work with them every day, and I talk to them every day. We we had lunch together. I know what they're going through. So I know, for instance, if you want to order a surgery in a hospital or an ASC, for instance, that is used by many providers, guess what? You have to schedule OR time. And if you need to schedule a surgery and wait for authorization, you may be pushing that surgery out further than you thought because, hey, that other clinic over here, they're also trying to schedule OR time, maybe the same time you are, but you can't do it on that day. You have to wait, right, to get the authorization two, three weeks down the line. And so I understand from your aspect, if you are in a clinical role, you're scheduling surgery, I feel you. I understand how difficult it is to get surgery blocked for a, a certain time frame when other facilities, other clinics are trying the same thing. But at the end of the day, it's just what we do. You know, when we have a patient who needs a service, we know they can't pay for it out of pocket. They can't risk um, having it not covered. And your provider, your clinic, your facility cannot risk not getting paid. It's not just about, hey, the provider wants to get paid for doing a service. They are paying you, um, all of you on staff, your, your payroll. They're paying to keep the lights on. They're paying for supplies, your computers that you're using. All of those things are covered under the payments they receive from insurance or from the patient. Any money that comes into that facility is used not just to pay the provider, um, but to pay their staff, all the things needed. And when you get up to a management level, administrative level, and you see all the numbers and you see all the expenses going out, and if you've been like me and you ran your own business for several years, and you have employees, you know this stuff, it's apparent to you. But maybe as someone who has never owned a business, it may not occur to you that your job is helping take care of keeping the lights on, keeping everything moving, right, going forward. So I thought it was important that we talk about that today, that if you have a role as a coder, if a role as a biller, you're a consultant, you're an auditor, whatever you're doing in the business side of healthcare, it's a vital role. And if an auditor comes to you, and I just want to tell you this, if you're a provider or you're a manager and you know you have to have an auditor come in and, and audit, it's, it's a part of what we do in healthcare. We have to check the checks and balances, right? If you have an auditor come into you, please, please, please treat them nicely. Treat them compassionately. They don't want to come in there and tell you any more than you want to hear it, right? And most of us auditors, we do our best to give you good news. We are not trying to be the bearer of bad news, we're trying to show you what you can do to improve. And when I go in and present an audit to a provider or a clinic, right, I give them the good news first. I say, look at this. This is great. You're doing wonderful. This is great news. We're seeing all these payments coming in over here. This is great. But we happen to notice that in this area, we can improve a little bit. We can improve the payments. And when a provider comes to you and asks you to do an audit, like the one that I just had last week come to me, it was a great conversation because... They were like, we know we're doing well here, but we just need to know where we can actually increase revenue. Like, that's all it's about. We just want to figure out if we're missing anything. And that is what we're doing. We're trying to find those missing pieces, those gaps um, in, our, in our processes, whether it's in the coding, it's in the billing, it's documentation, uh, what staff needs to be um, increased, 
what staff needs better trained because they know how to do their jobs, but maybe they don't have access to current information that is out there. Maybe they don't know where to go because no one ever told them. And you don't know what you don't know, right? So you got to be trained. And annual education, quarterly education for providers, for coders, for billers, even you managers out there, we all need education. It's a part of growing in any industry, which is why universities exist. It's why educational facilities exist is because ongoing education is vital. We're only human. We forget. (laughs) We aren't going to remember everything all the time. We have guidelines for a reason because we don't remember everything. We have to go back and read it. Okay, in my situation, what do I have to do here? I got to go back to my guideline. I got to figure this out. What does the guideline say? What does my payer say? And then I'm going to follow that. And for those of you out there who do follow those guidelines and do it well and are good researchers, we know you're successful. You're getting paid. Or at least if you're not getting paid, you know why. And you read the policy. You know you're within your, your guidelines. You've, you've followed their policy. And guess what? Now you got to know how to fight back. Now you have to know how to you know, get reimbursed, uh, go to that insurance company, appeal that. That's what they have appeal forms for. They know they're going to have situations where you have to appeal because you're submitting a number, a numeric code to them. They don't have documentation. They're going to request it. Maybe they'll understand the documentation. Maybe that person reviewing it missed something. And that's what they have those appeal forms for. They have processes in place for you to uh, maybe dispute a situation. All companies, all industries have appeal processes, guys. It's not a unique thing to healthcare. Now, healthcare has its own... Uh, nuances when it comes to levels of appeals and how to do it for this company and how to do it for that company. So all of these little, these things I'm telling you are all part of the revenue cycle. I have listed out to you a process that everybody goes through. No matter what role it is, it's all part of the revenue cycle. Everything we do in the revenue cycle affects another person in the revenue cycle. Every single code we put in, decision we make or not make affects Everyone doing their job in the revenue cycle. And guess who else it affects? The patient. Why we're all here. So let's do our jobs. And let's not complain about our jobs. Let's do them well. If we need help doing our jobs, reach out to someone who can help us. Don't be afraid to ask questions. The minute we stop asking questions, the minute we should ask ourselves, why have we stopped asking questions? Is there a process in place? Is there fear in our organization? I'm going to tell you, there have been times where I was afraid to ask a question. And I remember the reason. It was because I didn't feel comfortable going to my supervisor. I was timid. I was shy at that moment. I didn't know if I was asking the right question. And I didn't know how that question would be perceived or responded to. So those are things that from an administrative aspect and from an employee aspect, if you're an employee versus an employer, you can think about those things. Are you the kind of person that if someone came and asked you a question, that you're going to respond in a compassionate, understanding way? Because maybe at one point in your career, you had questions. And maybe you're a supervisor, but you have to report to somebody else. Do you have that same fear of asking questions to the person that you that leads you or should be leading you? So those are questions to ask. If your organization is needing assistance in those areas, uh, needing that, that expertise, needing that education, There are those of us out here who are, that's our job, but it's also our passion. We don't want you to go without revenue um, to keep your your business, keep your your doors open. 
because we know patients out there like us, right, in your community, we need the services you're providing. So we are here as well with our knowledge, our expertise to help you be successful. And a great way for you to get that education you need is to attend OncoSpark's upcoming Orthopedic Summit. It's one of the highest uh, requested specialties that we get here at OncoSpark. So I want to encourage everyone to attend the Orthopedic Summit this week. Uh, I'll be attending speaking this week, and so I hope you're able to attend. If you're not able to attend, we understand, and it'll be available on demand all year. So if you miss the opportunity, you can join that conference. And all of our conferences are available all year long. So if you miss any of our conferences in 2022, we have OBGYN services, we have pediatrics, cardiology, and of course, later this year, we will have oncology. So we encourage you to check out the show notes with information on how to access those events. Lots of CEUs offered for this conference this month, and it's going to be amazing. 18 CEUs. I know you coders out there could use them, especially those of us who like me who have seven credentials and have to have like 50 CEUs every year. So I'm definitely, definitely looking forward to getting my CEUs. And if you are going to be attending HealthCon in Denver this summer on August uh, 2nd through 5th, I will be there speaking August 3rd, Section 2B. So I hope you'll join me for orthopedics and evaluation management. I definitely want to also shout out to my girl, Christine Hall, who will be speaking on risk adjustment, as well as other consultants that I respect and and friends of mine that will be there as well. So we hope to see you live in Denver. And you can, of course, always catch us every Wednesday right here on the Life is Coder podcast. And once again, this is Jennifer McNamara, and I have been your host today. I want to thank our sponsors again over at Ozark Institute, powered by OncoSpark. And as well as our amazing podcast producer, Gabriel Fast with Highland Productions. Until next time. Thanks for joining the Life as a Coder podcast. Please feel free to rate or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We appreciate that effort. It helps us share the show with other healthcare professionals just like you. Join us next Wednesday for another episode. We'll catch you then.